Well, this morning we come to the end, essentially, of Paul's missionary journeys. There in your bulletin, I think you have the map of Paul's third missionary journey. And Luke condenses this one. We don't get a lot of the details of a lot of the cities that he visits. We know that he went to Ephesus at the end of his second journey, back to Syria, then came through on the third journey, back through Turkey, visiting those churches there in the region of Galatia, and then went to Ephesus. And he's been at Ephesus for some time, for a couple years. And last week's text, we know a riot broke out. Paul was getting at the point where he was about to leave anyway. But a riot breaks out by Demetrius, the silversmith. The economy is being so affected by the proclamation of the gospel. People are turning away from the foolishness of the idols there for Artemis or Diana. And apparently it's affecting the economy. Demetrius has had just about enough of this. He gets the tradesmen. They start a big riot. And uh, Paul, remember, was ready to rush headlong into it. He wanted to get down there into the theater and do some preaching. But the guys hold him back and say, no, it's not wise for you to, uh, to get in the, in the middle of that scuffle. And things eventually calm down after a couple hours. And Paul now will head out of town. Again, he was planning on heading out. Anyway, he's certainly not running away from, from trouble. And in the beginning of our text, we're going to consider primarily this morning the farewell uh, that Paul has with the Ephesian elders in Miletus. Um, but, but the summary of the chapter, I think, is interesting. For one, because the, even in the farewell, we get, uh, in some sense, an, an autobiographical report from Paul. Paul actually is sharing with the Ephesians who know him well, uh, uh, maybe, maybe better than, than others. He's been there for several years with them. But Paul recounts some of his story. He lets us into his own heart uh, about how he has viewed them, but also how he views his own ministry. So we get, a, we get a window into Paul in this text, but not only in his autobiography there, or his, his telling of the story, but also in, in his travels. On the one hand, Paul's going to tell the, the Ephesians, um, hey, I, I'm going to go to Jerusalem uh, knowing that I'm going to suffer. Right? He, again, is going headlong into trouble. And yet, in the story, Paul flees from trouble. It just gets to the fact that being a leader, you know, he, we're told that when he heard that there was a plot from the Jews, he decided to scoot out of town and, and make his way on foot when they were going to perhaps go on boat. And perhaps he thought that getting on the ship was not a good idea, that maybe the plot to kill him was going to take place there. And so Paul decides to travel on foot while some of the others go on boat. And, and Paul used his wisdom and his judgment from time to time. Other times he's lowered out of the, the city in a basket. And other times he marches right into the riot. Um, so we, we see that uh, there's, no, there's, no simple, there's no simple path for us, even as Christians, even following the example of Paul or of Jesus. Sometimes Jesus scooted out of town. Other times, of course, he marches right into Jerusalem knowing he's going to be crucified. So there's, it requires us to be quick on our feet and to think through the moment and what the moment demands of us. We get a glimpse of that here with Paul. Paul leaves Ephesus. He travels to Macedonia and Greece, again, doing what he's done before, going back and encouraging the churches. It will be from here that he will write his letters to the uh, particularly 2 Corinthians. He'll write back and encouraging them, being a little disgusted with some of the things that he sees going on in Corinth. 
So he's going back, and he loves, he's like a mother hen to his churches, and he goes back and, and checks on them. <clears throat> and then the last story that we get of Paul before we get him back to Miletus and back with the Ephesians, in Luke's telling of the story, it's kind of a quick tell, and he's going to be back with the Ephesians, is this interesting story at Troas where Paul is preaching, and he's, 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 he's working up a good one. He's got, a, he's got quite a sermon going because he's going all night long. <laughs> and uh, he's going right, right to the midnight, you know, midnight hour. And this young man, now, now again, remember, think about, think about preaching in Paul's time. You know, he's, he's in this upper room, apparently three stories up. It's dark. You just got candlelight. And, uh, and Paul's preaching and going on and on and on. I have to assume it was a one awesome, awesome sermon. But nonetheless, it's a long time. And, uh, and this young man, Eutychus, who, who has the unfortunate seat there on the window, uh, zonks out. And we're told he's overcome with sleep. <laughs> he just can't hold, he can't, you've been there. Uh, hopefully not in my sermons, though, though from time to time I, I see from up here. So, so I, I know that, uh, that we've all been Eutychus at one point or another, but, but he's been overcome by sleep and then falls out the window. Uh, and it's, it's, there's nothing humorous about it except that we know how the story ends. Only humorous that he, he was that sleepy that, uh, that out the window he went. And so Paul's sermon is interrupted. And I say interrupted because if you read the text, when it's all done, they break bread together and he comes up and keeps preaching. So, so Paul was not even deterred by young Eutychus falling out the window. This is a man who is determined in his mission. Now, he does take time away. He goes down. We're told he falls on Eutychus, prays over Eutychus, and, and reports back, it's going to be okay. He's going to live. And, and though Eutychus was dead, he is brought back from the dead. He comes back up and then says, now, where, you know, where was I? <laughs> and then preaches right till daybreak. Right till daybreak. So it's, a, it's an interesting uh, story about Paul's determination. He also knows that this is the last time he's going to get to do this in these places. Paul knows that this is my last word to you. And he takes that very seriously. And even as he will go to Miletus to meet with the Ephesian elders, he will tell them, this is the last time you're going to see me. And so these words have, have power. Paul knows, though he doesn't know all the details, as we'll hear him say, Paul, Paul knows that this is the last time with these people and he really wants to pour his heart out to them. So he has this, this time at Troas, Eutychus is healed and so forth, but then Paul's gone and, and then um, uh, we're told the details about you know, Luke, who by the way is clearly with Paul in this and other representatives from all these different churches are. You heard Ma, uh, Mark do a wonderful job pronouncing all the names. And, uh, and, but these men, if you catch it, are from all these different places where Paul has planted churches. And it's almost like little re you know, representatives from these churches have joined him for his journey, especially on this, his last trip. Again, the affection of Paul for these disciples that he's going to be leaving in charge of these churches. And Luke is with them. You know, sometimes Luke tells us what happened with Paul, and other times you hear him use the first person plural. And we're reminded that Paul is doing this firsthand, or excuse me, Luke is doing this firsthand. He's right in there with them on the ship here. And so he gives us the details about how they made their way to Miletus. We also hear Luke give us a little insight here that, that Paul did not want to go to Ephesus. 
He knew that if he went to Ephesus, he's trying to make it to Jerusalem by Pentecost. He would like to be there for uh, that celebration. And so he knows if I stop on, on my trip into Ephesus, I'm not getting out of there. Either I'm going to be brought right back into the ministry of Ephesus or it's just going to be so hard to leave that church after having spent time there. So he decides, I'd rather not do that. Let's bypass Ephesus and go a little bit to the south to Miletus. And from there, summon the elders of the church to come down. So he does want to meet these people one more time, but he knows that, unfortunately, he can't just get himself embroiled in the life of the church again. Or perhaps knowing that having left, there, w- there was a riot when he, when he left, maybe just letting things become whatever. Paul decides, let's get the elders together down here in Miletus. And it is a rich and a tearful farewell. Again, I love this because it gets to the fact that this is not business for Paul. Paul loves his church. He loves these people, and they love him. And they're broken, you heard at the end of the text. They fall on Paul. They're kissing him, and they're weeping. And they're weeping because he said, this is it. You won't, you won't see me again. But this is a time not just where Paul is trying to stir up sentiment. It's a time in which Paul is charging them to go back now and to be the men, to be the leaders, to be the shepherds and the elders of the church in Ephesus. And so what this is really about is a charge. And so we'll get that, we'll get there in, in a second. Really two things happen in this farewell. One, Paul recounts his ministry to them. And only his ministry, his life, and his goals of where he's heading And then secondly, he charges them. So let's just take a moment to think about Paul as he describes himself here. We're down in verse 17, really 17 to the end of the chapter. Paul is is breaking down the life that he lived among them. Paul begins to speak. From Miletus, he went to Ephesus, and he uh, he sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day, that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. Paul reminds them, hey, I lived among you. I was with you for these three years. And as I did for Paul, and you know this, if you, if you go back and read any of Paul's letters, when he identifies himself as anything, yes, he's an apostle, But ultimately, underneath that, what undergirds that is the fact that Paul is a servant. Paul will identify himself to the churches as a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word that he uses here for serve is basically the word for slave. This is how Paul views himself. Though he's an apostle, he's a guy who can bring Eutychus back from the dead. He's a guy who, last week, his handkerchiefs are healing people. But in all that, when Paul views himself, when Paul has the moment to say, hey, you remember who I am and how I lived here, what he describes himself as is a servant. He's a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ, a common slave of Jesus Christ. Even as Jesus Christ, as Paul himself wrote to the Philippian church, was a slave a servant of his father, a servant even 
of all humankind. The Son of Man came not to be served, Jesus said, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Paul knows full well that if the, his Savior, his Messiah, is the servant, then Paul can be nothing more than that. And when Paul describes his ministry, it is that of a servant. Even when he describes down in verse 22 the fact that he's about to go out to Jerusalem, notice how he describes it. And see, now I go bound in the spirit. Bound. That's slave language. Right? That his relationship even to the spirit, that he ultimately is a slave, a servant of the triune God. And this defines his whole life. He has no ultimately, and apparently through what we see of him, no ambition other than that of serving the Lord Jesus Christ in the power of the Spirit. So Paul says, you will remember that I lived among you and that I served the Lord with all humility. Humility. I take C.S. Lewis's definition of humility as my own when I think of the word. Uh, C.S. Lewis says, humility does not mean thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. Paul did not underestimate the gifts that the Lord had given to him or the things that he did well. But when Paul says, I served among you, I served the Lord with all humility, I think taking that definition, what we understand is that Paul was driven to serve the church. Paul did not seek his own good. Paul was not constantly walking around thinking about himself. But Paul saw himself of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus Christ, the servant of all men. And therefore, Paul is the servant of all men. And Paul's ministry was characterized by this kind of humility. You know, if you've read Paul's letters, sometimes you might think he's pompous. Paul has no problem saying what he does well or, uh, or, or listing out the, the gifts that the Lord has given him or telling people, hey, follow my example of holding himself out there in the front and saying, follow me. Paul doesn't see that in any way as violating the humility with which he served. But all of that, putting himself out in the front and telling people to follow his example, Paul sees all of that ultimately as being a service to them. Follow me as I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul serves and he serves with all humility, and then he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with many tears. The mighty Paul, who we know suffered greatly even to this point, and it, it gets worse as he will, will ultimately go to prison again, and then finally, uh, we know through history, be executed for the gospel. But Paul has been imprisoned. This, this journey has not been an easy one. It has not been one of comfort. Serving the church has been one filled, as he says here, with many tears and trials by the plotting of the Jews. And not just the Jews. Don't forget, it was the Gentiles in, in Ephesus, their hometown, that were plotting by Demetrius to, to get him and to, see, to, to, to cut this movement off. Paul's work and serving the Lord was one that came with great tears. He will say to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians when he lists out his credentials, and all of his credentials are his sufferings, the stripes that he has on his back, the times he's been beaten with rods, 
the times he's been chased here and there, the times he's been in prison, the times he's been, you know, been, been pursued by wild beasts, and I think he means crowds, like up in Ephesus. He says, on top of all these things, which are enough to sink any of us, I, 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 I frankly would not want to go through any one of, of, of those things that are in Paul's list of credentials. But then he says, on top of all that, I have the daily care of the church. Like, I actually love these people. And so Paul ministers with tears in his churches. He's going to say to them, in fact, we, we get there uh, presently, Paul says in verse 20, you know also how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house. That is to say, I think this gets to some of the tears that Paul had. Paul says, I didn't hold anything back from you. I told you everything. If I needed to confront you face to face, I confronted you. Though indeed it would bring tears. I'm sure there were many tearful conversations that he had to have with fellow believers there. Maybe with some that walked away from the faith. With some whom he loved and needed to be confronted. Paul loved the church. And he suffered for the church. So he lived among them. He served with humility. He served the Lord Jesus Christ. He served with tears. He served through trials. And then, of course, most of all, he preached. Paul's gift, Paul's service to Christ and to the church was primarily this. He preached. Paul says, I endeavor to know nothing before you except Christ and him crucified. Some come with this and some come with that, but I come, he says to the Corinthians, with the foolishness of preaching, preaching Christ, placarding him, keeping him presented before you. This is what Paul's service was about. Yes, I'm sure he had many pastoral conversations, but ultimately, and diaconal ministries, but ultimately Paul's ministry was preaching Christ and him crucified. So verse 20, you know how I kept nothing back that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you. And then if we jump ahead, he kind of comes back to this again up in verse 26. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And we know what he means by that. That doesn't mean you should, I didn't kill anybody. We know from Ezekiel 3 what he's talking about there. I am confident, Paul is saying, that I am not going to stand before God and God's going to say, hey, that guy's going to hell because you didn't tell him the truth, because you never proclaimed it to him. You stood in his presence and never confronted him with the truth. It's pretty strong and actually a little nerve-wracking what God says to Ezekiel. And sure, Ezekiel had a particular role as the prophet of God, but there's a certain sense in which in Christ we all share that responsibility. We are all little prophets, priests, and kings underneath the ultimate capital P prophet, priest, and kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul knows that. Paul knows he bears that responsibility. He has a peculiar responsibility in all these places. And when he leaves, he leaves clean and innocent of the blood of these men. That is to say, I did not hold anything back from you. There was no hard word that I needed to say to you that I held. I didn't swallow it. And in that way, I'm innocent of your blood. In some sense, he's throwing that mantle back on them. Hey, I've said it. What you do with it, what you do with it is now between you and God. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day, I'm innocent of the blood of all men. And here gets to the 
the repeat of what he said before. For I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I have preached to you the whole counsel of God. That is to say, he doesn't, that doesn't mean I've preached through every book of the Bible. But what it does mean is that there is no truth that I have not declared to you. There's no facet of the faith that I've withheld from you. The hard things I declared to you. Not only the hard personal truths, but the hard doctrinal truths I have declared to you. It's really what we hold ourselves to in the PCA, and certainly the elders do to me, that my job is to preach to you the whole counsel of God. That's the beauty of going through a book, even like this, right? When we march our way through a book, if all of a sudden I got to a hard text and I kind of jumped over it, Mark and Evars would say, hey, no, 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 back it up. You've got to preach this text. What are you jumping over that hard text for? You take a book and you preach through it because you say we want to get to and through the whole counsel of God. We want to as best we can. Of course, Paul is not saying more than actually happened, but what he's saying is I didn't withhold any truth from you. We want to hold up the truth of God and look at it from every conceivable angle. We want to wrestle through every difficult truth. And not only truth, but application of what it means to us. And Paul says, I've done that. I've not withhold held these hard things from you. Anything that was profitable for you, I declared it to you. So that, again, uh, down back in verse 20, I kept back nothing that was helpful or proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and Greeks repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the goal for Paul. And ultimately we take this to mean this was not just the, the goal for the church in Ephesus, but this is the goal for affirmation. That what are we to do with the whole counsel of God? What are we to do with the preaching of God's word? Repentance and faith, two sides of one coin. We are to be repenting, turning away from our old man, turning away from our idols, turning away from our sin. That's what repenting means, turning. Turning away from that and turning to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must let every text challenge us. We must let every text, as we preach through the whole counsel of God, challenge us to flee from the idols and sins that so plague us and trouble us. And Paul says, that was my ambition and that was my goal. So that's Paul looking back on his life. And now he turns in verse, 23, uh, verse 22 and looks forward and see, now I go bound in the spirit, that's slave language, right? I'm, I'm bound by the spirit. Where the spirit leads, I go. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus Christ to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. That's it's just so almost hard to read. It's so humbling to hear Paul talk about his life. He says, I'm going ignorantly and yet with some knowledge. I don't know the details of what await me, but this I do know that I'm going to be in chains. Prison awaits me. I don't know how it's going to look. I don't know how it's going to go down, but pretty much I'm getting this message. Paul's going city to city, and people are coming to him. 
I'm guessing even asking him maybe not to go. You know, hey, maybe it would be wise if you don't go down to Jerusalem. I think bad things are in store for you there. Paul says, I'm getting the, I'm, I'm getting, the Spirit is, is communicating to me that this is what awaits me, that I do know. And yet he says, but I'm not moved by it. I'm not moved by it because I believe the Spirit wants me to go there, and therefore I'll go. And Paul gives us again a window into his soul here, and I, we should be convicted by this. If not convicted, let's just say challenged by this. Paul says, none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I've received from the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is this man who is driven, but what he's driven to and what he's driven by is this race this calling that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to him and nothing else matters. It's not that Paul didn't do anything else. It's not that Paul didn't ever have some recreation. It's not that Paul never laughed. It's not that Paul didn't you know, do any, 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 have a hobby here or there in his life. It's not that he didn't ever have a distracting thought. But what drove Paul was the calling that the Lord has put on his life. And at the end of the day, to him, that's the only thing that mattered. You'll remember to the Corinthians, he actually says something like, you know, if eating meat causes my brother to sin, then you know what? I'll never eat meat again. I'm sure Paul liked to eat meat. But I'm not here for my belly. I'm here as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ for the sake of his church. And even something like eating meat, if it gets in the way, then it's got to go. For the sake of my brother. If keeping my brother means I never eat meat again, let the meat go, give me the brother. Because that's what I'm here to do. I'm, I'm a servant. I'm a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not a servant of my belly. In fact, in Philippians chapter 4, when Paul contrasts those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven and those who are citizens of the earth, if you will, who are, who, who are enemies of the Lord, we're told. He says this, he gives this description of, of them. He says, their God is their belly. What they serve are their lusts. What they serve are their desires. They're, they're sort of based as things that are not bad. Your belly's not bad. The things you're interested in, the things you and I desire throughout the day are not bad. They're just bad when they become God. When they become the ambition of our life, when we spend the energy of our life serving them. They're the ends. Not the means to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's so humbling is Paul ends this third journey in years of traveling by boat and by foot and accumulating these credentials that he lists out in 2 Corinthians, the beatings and the whippings and the stonings and the imprisonments and the sufferings at sea and the sufferings of the land and the sufferings by bandits and the sufferings of the church, that when he does all this, he says, I'm not moved by any of it. All that matters to me is that I finish my race, that I end well, that one day the Lord says to me, well done, good and faithful servant. 
I'll enjoy meat at the, at the, the, the supper of the lamb, the wedding supper of the lamb one day. I'll enjoy rest and peace then. But for now, it's about running the race with all endurance. For me, Paul says, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. To live is Christ. I think here you get a picture of what that phrase means, to live is Christ. I know I'm going, I'm walking into imprisonments, but it doesn't move me. Because for me, to live is Christ. And I just want to finish my race well. And the ministry that the Lord Jesus Christ has given to me. It's awesome. And it's humbling indeed. And may the Lord challenge us to that same way of living. He's given us different callings, to be sure. But I think if we just take a moment and examine our lives, I think we can all, we would all confess how often we are distracted from the race that the Lord Jesus Christ has given us to run. How oftentimes little interested we are in finishing that race well and how much we are interested in all the tangents of life, the things that, by God's grace, should serve the end and how often they become ends in themselves. I'm convicted of this myself. So finally, Paul's exhortation to them, and through them to us and to all the church. Verse 28, therefore, so here Paul recounts all this story so that he can bring it home to these Ephesian elders whom he knows he will not see again. And he says there, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to the flock. Take, remember, these are elders. But he says to them, take heed to yourself. Guard your soul. He's going to tell them here because wolves are going to come in among you. Wolves are going to seek to devour this church. I'm going to leave, and when I leave, wolves are coming. And you all are going to have to be the shepherds. But he, he doesn't just say, shepherds of the church, but shepherds of yourself. You're going to have to take heed to yourself. I could preach a sermon to the elders here. I'll save that for our next session meeting. I'll give them a sermon out of Ephesians 20 and think about what it means to be an elder given this text. We need to shepherd the church. We need to be watching and watchful. But it's not just to them as elders, but to them as believers. Take heed, brothers and sisters, to yourselves and to the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his blood. This is what makes the role of the elder so important. You're not just shepherding your people. They're not your people. These are people. You are people that have been purchased by the blood of Christ. And by the way, that also gets to how you shepherd yourself. How you take heed to yourself. You are not your own. You've been bought. You, like Paul, are bound. You, like Paul, are servants and slaves of the glorious master of Jesus Christ who laid down his life for you, of the good shepherd. But your life, your body, is not your own. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, take heed of yourself. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, also from among yourselves, from among the church. 
men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. Be on guard. And remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Watch and remember the teaching. Remember the warnings that were given to you. If you go read Revelation chapter 2, John writes a letter to the seven churches. And the first of the seven churches is Ephesus. And what's great is when you read that letter, which is probably 40 years, maybe 40 years, 35 years after this moment, about 35 years, we think, the church is doing well with regards to the savage wolves. They got other problems. They got other problems. In fact, it appears that they've been so they've taken Paul's words to heart so much so they've been on such guard against false teaching and savage wolves that they've actually maybe lost a little bit of love for the flock that that they forgot to just love people. They've been so on guard against false teaching, but they've taken Paul's words to heart. We should be encouraged by that that Paul's words stuck here with them. But this is a concern not just for the Ephesian church but for all of us. The reason why we're studying theology in our Sunday school time for membership and why we want to have these table talk sessions with some dinner and talking theology. And while we are wanting you to bring your thoughts, we're taking up a topic. We're going to go through uh, the acronym TULIP. And so in, on what did I say, it was the 24th, whatever that Wednesday is, this is going to be our first evening session. If you'd like to come, we're going to have a meal together and we're taking up the doctrine of total depravity. We're going to put that doctrine on the table. And I'll hopefully, Lord willing, next week I'll have an insert in the bulletin with some texts to read, some questions maybe to begin wrestling with so that you come to the table, those of you who want to come, uh, with food for thought already there. You've already begun to wrestle through some things. And, and if I need to, I'll play devil's advocate and, and press some challenging questions. But the, the point of this is not just so we can you know, gather up some more knowledge. The, the, the point of studying theology, first of all, is to know the Lord our God better, but also so that we might guard ourselves from false teaching, to guard ourselves from error. There's so much sloppy theology in the evangelical church today, lazy theology. Ask people what they believe. And you get maybe one question deep and it just gets really fuzzy or the hands go up and go, I, I don't know. We've not learned to wrestle with hard questions, but then that makes you very susceptible, very susceptible to savage wolves who seek to come in and distract and lead you away into false teaching. And we see it. We see it in the evangelical world. One way in which you combat that is you watch and you remember you think through what was taught and wrestle with it and grapple with it, eat it, take it into you so that it gives, so that it bears fruit in our lives. Well, Paul challenges them. Take heed, watch, and remember. And brothers and sisters, may that be the challenge we take from Paul's ministry. May we look at his life even as an example to us, and he's only a mere reflection of Jesus Christ who was the servant, who was the good shepherd, who laid down his life 
who didn't care about the frivolous things, but who set his face like a flint looking at Jerusalem and the cross so that he could finish his race well. Paul is just a mere reflection of that. May we be men and women, young men and women, older men and women, seasoned men and women who stand in the line of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul seeking to run our race well like the author of Hebrews says let us run the race with endurance fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ who is the author and the finisher of our faith casting aside every sin that entangles knowing that when we trip and fall and we will because we're not Jesus that when we do if our eyes are fixed upon Jesus who's the author and the finisher of our faith we know we get picked up dusted off, set back on the path, ready to run again. But may that be our ambition. Fix your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and run well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we admit how easily distracted we are. We're so easily off the straight path, that narrow path that leads to life. We're so easily distracted from the calling that you've given to us so that we often Oh, we run off course and pursue so many things that the world tells us we ought to pursue. Forgive us for this, we pray. And refocus us. Recenter us, we pray. As we look at the model of Paul, your amazing, faithful, fallen servant. So, Father, challenge us today. And help us, in light of Paul's words to the Ephesian elders in Miletus, to be watchful, to take heed over the church, over our brothers and sisters, but, Father, also over ourselves. Make us lovers of the truth. Make it, give us a strong defense by your Spirit against savage wolves from without or within that seek to destroy. And, Father, we pray that you would preserve us by your grace until the end, for you indeed are the author and the finisher of our faith, and we give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen.